0: tonight is to talk about the third noble truth, but it's, somehow it's going in another direction. <laughs> we'll start but it's, it's headed off in another direction. But since we have talked about the first truth of dukkha, the second truth, the <clears throat> cause of dukkha, this tanha, this craving that I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, the third truth being that there is an ending, a cessation of dukkha, the fourth truth being the path, the Eightfold Path, which I believe Greg spoke about at some point. The whole, everything we talk about is the Eightfold Path. I just want you to read to to you the Buddha's uh, definition of the Third Noble Truth when he first taught these four truths. This bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the remainderless fading and cessation, the renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving, of that very tanha that is the cause of suffering. So one way that I find quite accessible in our moment-to-moment experience of our mind and heart, one way of uh, describing, really meaning, understanding, experiencing a moment-to-moment, the third noble truth is in the moments when the heart, the mind, is completely free from clinging. Liberation of heart-mind through non-clinging. And this is something that, because of the fact that the mind, heart, the chitta that word for both, is a phenomena arising and passing, changing in every moment, that means you don't have to wait for total, complete, absolute cessation of clinging to touch, to taste, to experience a, a flavor of this quality of liberation through non-clinging moment to moment to moment. And as Joseph Goldstein really likes to say, liberation through non-clinging, and it doesn't matter to what, the mind does not cling. Just like I say, awareness doesn't care what it's aware of. It doesn't matter to what, the heart-mind doesn't cling. Because it's not about the what. It's about that quality of non-clinging in this moment of heart-mind, in this moment of consciousness, this moment of chitta. So now we start to veer. <laughs> so today and, and over the days, different people, all, all of you really, even if you don't believe it, have moments where you really know for yourself that it's the clinging, the craving in the heart, in the mind, in a particular moment that you really see when it ends, when it dissolves, that it was simply that clinging, that craving that was blocking. As someone said today, it was so clear that it was clinging that was blocking the perception of emptiness that Adrian talked about. So much less, like we have to figure it out, but when the clinging is gone, that perception is available. Even more, many people see that the sense of self is when the clinging lets go in a moment, whether the clinging is to any of the five aggregates, to whatever experience, in the moment when the clinging dissolves, so does that particular sense of self. One of my favorite quotations about that from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, the Thai, great Thai forest monk and scholar from the last century, is the sense of self is simply a condition that arises when there's grasping or clinging in the mind. That's it. We make this big brouhaha about the sense of self and it's gotta go and it's always here and now when we stop and look at it, it's simply a condition that arises. Okay, it arises a lot. <laughs> but every time it arises, it passes. Every time. You say, well, not this time. It's here now. <laughs> you just didn't see it arise. It's going kind to of pass. And because we don't look, it seems like we assume it's always this same sense of self. Every moment of sense of self arising that clinging to some different particular experience. That's a whole other talk. I have like 17 talks in this talk. Um, <laughs> but there's times when we really see it really experience, oh, the clinging goes, there's no particular sense of self. And it's not a huge, you know, experience. It's just so normal and natural. And there's that sense, well, and this is really where I'm going now. Well, this is obvious, isn't it? How could I possibly get caught up in it again? Right? <laughs> it's so clear. Yes, emptiness, everything is insubstantial. How could I possibly get upset about that noise, you know, of the beeping of the smoke alarm? How can that possibly bother me when I know all phenomena are empty? And then you find yourself up in the middle of the night throwing pillows at it and writing notes to the manager, Go, oh, empty phenomena rolling on, <laughs> doesn't feel too empty. God. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) I'm never going to get through it. You guys have to stop laughing. I'm never going to get through this talk. But when we really see it, we really get it. It's not an imagined thing. We're not making it up. We really do know in that moment that when the focus of attention, of awareness, is on the object. Whatever of the five khandas the object is, smelling, tasting, thinking, when the focus is on that, we're looking to the object for fulfillment, for meaning, for sense of self. That's where the clinging comes in. That's where the whole suffering, the whole phenomena ball gets rolling. And we know as soon as there's that, that kind of tai chi move, that stepping into the awareness of the same object, the same experience. But the, just this stepping into refuge in awareness instead of sinking into looking into the object for self-reference. Oh, the same experience is occurring without the Velcro. It's just happening, just as it is. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That extra suffering isn't there. And really want us all to trust in those moments that's a real perception. That's a true understanding. And <laughs> just as it arose, it passes away. And this is what I really want to talk about tonight. We really get it. But, but, you know, so how can we, what, this is kind of a pep talk. What can we do? How can we keep on finding the courage, the trust, the determination to continue to open into, with totality of presence, this whole path, this one particular moment. And that's what I want to talk about. So, but, little examples, we're seeing people are really, you're all in different places and we, you all keep changing places, right? Because that's how it goes. Everybody's path is unique. But there's times when, each of you has been been really experiencing um, deep insights into Dhamma, into freedom, into the three characteristics, into emptiness, maybe into um, aspects of your personality, habit patterns that you hadn't seen. Really understanding, seeing through them, and then you turn around and you're doing the same thing again, and you're really caught again, and it's so, it can really take us into discouragement. Or am I the only one? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. Or, you know, it's going well. And I think you know if you come into any of this and say, oh, it's going well, it's really good, we never let it sit there. Because what does that mean, you know? But it's going well, there's insights, it's flowing. And then all of a sudden, some really deep, difficult, painful thing comes up. Or even worse... A lot of just niggly, stupid thoughts and you can't focus on anything. At least if some big thing comes up, you can feel like you're working with something. (laughs) Right? But when it's just, oh, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that, it's not even about anything, but I just can't focus. You know, that's when you're really ready to hang up the towel. (laughs) Doubt, impatience, frustration, despair, really, can it be? I'm in despair because I was in walking meditation and thoughts kept coming up. I'm in total despair. (laughs) We hear this stuff all day. (laughs) The thing is, you are in total despair. And so this is where we want to bring our awareness to understand what's going on here and not to let ourselves get caught in these emotional reactions to what's happening. Ajahn Buddhadasa, had a a, a translation of a talk he gave. And I'm sure many of you have heard quotations from this where he was talking to Thai lay people about nibbana for everyone is the title of this talk. I'm just a very, very short uh, reading from it. But he's talking about nibbana is a natural condition, a natural condition, not some amazing huge thing only for special people. That's what he's talking to Thai lay people, telling them this. Don't just think it's for nuns and monks, you know, who are going to be arhats and, and you just have to wait for another lifetime, he's telling them. And the bond is for everyone. And so he's calling it a natural condition, the cool state of mind, heart, without any kalesa, without any torments, just what we've been saying all along. And just a little piece, he goes on to say, if we really look at this, we see that the kalesa, greed, hatred, confusion are also Dhamma, compounded, conditioned phenomena. They come together when the conditions are ripe. And when those conditions change and cease, then those causal conditions are not present. The kalesa, the torments, simply become extinct. So this is in any moment when there's suddenly clear seeing that kalesas in that moment have become extinct. And he says, although the extinction is temporary, (laughs) no, but, don't, in other words, the coolness takes place temporarily. The phenomenon has the real taste of nibbana, even though it's not the lasting one. And he says, we all experience many, many moments of this coolness of heart and mind, of the moments free from kalesa. He says, because without it, the fire of the Kalesas, he said, we we die. This is what nourishes our life. This freedom, these moments of freedom from Kalesa to really notice that through the days here. Is it not, it is, these aren't about any, you know, amazing thing happening. This isn't about big inside, oh, non-self. and It's just the little moments where the heart-mind is cool, it's not burning with the fire of greed, the fire of hatred, the fire of delusion. And it, so just, just to notice in the walking, in the sitting, when you're eating, sitting in the bathroom, anytime. And I'll often experience, this. it's just a, you might even think, oh, this is a little exquisite moment. Or one of those moments of like the, the Zen people say, the isness of things. And often when we're in a place like this where the nature's really beautiful and there's these moments just of pure presence and you're outside, I find what, what can easily happen is we overlook that it's the quality of the coolness, of the absence of kalesa, that's that's what's creating the sense of purity of presence and we tend to attribute it or can attribute it to the circumstances or the object and you walk out and there's the beautiful crescent moon in the sky it's, like, ah, it's so beautiful and we forget to notice that really what that coolness is is in that moment the consciousness is free from kalesa it's a moment a little taste of liberation of mind-heart through non-clinging. But our habit of... So just notice these. Many, many, many through the day come and go. No big deal. And let it start to be no big deal. Then we'll stop striving so much to achieve some idea of nibbana. And whatever idea you have can't possibly be correct because it's not about an idea or words or anything. So put the ideas down. (laughs) Let go of the views and just notice a little, nothing special moment of you're putting down your foot and there's just the sensation of pressure and tingling. But there's not the mind saying, okay, a couple more steps and I go to lunch. Just the sensation of pressure and tingling and wakefulness. And he comes to, well, nothing's happening. I'm just walking, feeling pressured. Notice that, just that moment of purity of heart and mind. Many, many moments so that we can really trust it more. So as he says, nibbana is for everyone. So that's on the one side. And on the other side, our tendency, as I said, is so much to attribute experience to the object, to the circumstance, or whatever. We forget to notice the purity of heart and mind. And again then, we're kind of sucked back in to the story, sucked back into this place of confusion and doubt. It was so beautiful. I was just at ease. And now I go in my room and I'm lost in all this weird emotions. And how can that possibly be? And then we start spinning. So... Nibbana for everyone, but it's also the true liberation of heart and mind from non-clinging is really challenging for everyone. These moments, yes, they're absolutely natural. They're free from effort because effort gets in the way. They're absolutely available to all of us much of the time. But they come and they go and the habits are so strong that I just want to talk a little bit about some of the ways as we deepen in practice, as we're really touching and experiencing the freedom from maybe as I described it now or seeing through your patterns or some of the things I said before and then seeing that go away And even though we may tell ourselves, oh yeah, well that's okay, it's really okay, it's all one, I don't mind. You know, maybe there's a moment when it's okay, but it starts to spiral down and we start to believe it more. So freedom from clinging is absolutely uncompromising. There's no aspect, whatever, of our experience that's exempt from that. So at some times, we're going to kind of what I, I my language that I use is called, we, we, as our practice is deepening, as understanding is growing, but it's kind of going back and forth between understanding and getting caught. As I call it, like different ways that we, we hit a wall. Where we're really practicing very sincerely and actually understanding is deepening. But we hit at times different places that are really challenging. In our practice, in our life. And so I just want to just mention a few tonight so you won't think there's something wrong with with you, but also to see it's all part of the path. So like I was saying, uh, freedom from clinging, there's nothing exempt, freedom from greed, hatred, delusion. And when we One thing is when we think about, which we do, because that's what we do, we think about what would freedom from clinging be like? What would nibbana be like? Of course we're going to have some idea about that, and we want to know, right, ahead of time, what am I doing this for? What's it going to be like? How's it going to be, and how can I steer my experience in that direction? Isn't that what all the techniques and all the instructions are about? And we, you know, we lose the fact, we lose noticing that the steering has become wanting and the wanting is in service of some idea we've made up. And um, we forget that we can't know that what's required moment to moment to moment is this just in one moment. Remember, it's only ever one moment, which is, to me, the only thing that makes it workable. So... What I'm saying is about this one moment. So what's required is full commitment in this moment to open with fullness of presence into the unknown of what's occurring right now. Without having it all sussed out, without being able to put it in a trajectory of where it's going, without knowing if I really open into this scary thing, what's going to happen? What will I get out of it? What would just, no, you don't even know. Just to completely open into the unknown in this moment with mindful awareness, with kind attention. It's what we've been saying all along. But that there's no guarantees ever, ever, just into this moment. And this, at times, it's really freeing when it happens. It's like, oh yeah, how could I forget? But there's times it's really challenging, right? Really scary, Awakening is not a self improvement project. As Ajahn Semedos, I've never heard him say once, it's not our personality that gets enlightened. It's not, awakening doesn't like confirm us, make us feel all good about ourselves, give us a sense of self fulfillment. I'm such a better person now that I'm enlightened. You know, it's actually the standpoint of me is what gets seen through. As I was saying, really noticing the arising and passing of the sense of me, the sense of I. We, we, when we recognize that in those moments, we can't take it so seriously, and that's freeing. When we don't recognize it, again, it's really serious and it's not so freeing. So along the way kind of what happens is all of our views, our beliefs about ourselves, about what the world is like, about practice, about anything, at some point, all of our views, our beliefs, our attachments, our strategies of self-interest are going to be challenged. Not to say they're all bad or wrong, but at some point as we practice any view that we're holding to, Is going to be challenged. Because the Buddha talked a lot about uh, not attaching to views, views of enlightenment, views even of the teachings, views of who you are, views of anything. He said even the teachings, you know, are not to be held on to. So no view to be held to. And so many times when we when we're in in places like, happening to some today and some not, we're what I call hitting the wall where you're going along and actually, to us, we can tell the practice is going great. It's just that what's coming up is unpleasant or disconcerting or not what you'd expect or you don't know quite how to be with it. And so you think your view of what practice is, is what's being challenged. But actually your path of awakening is going along just fine, you know? So a lot of what our job is, is, I don't know if you've noticed, we kind of like pat you back into shape. Okay, that's okay. Shake yourself up. Keep going. It's going along fine, you know? Have you noticed how often we do that? Because it's all about just keeping on meeting the moment with, you know, open awareness. It's not about making the moment different or better. making us feel better about ourselves. But God knows we'll keep trying. <laughs> so just a few of the well, ways, there's a million ways, but just a few that came to my mind of that, that are very common in my experience, and I know I'm not the only one, of how we like hit a wall or, or we don't recognize we're running into a view we're holding, a personality view, particularly Sakaya Ditti. So one is just when things are going along and you think it's going well, and then it changes, and there's that deep sense, I had it, I was doing it, I understood it, and what did I do wrong? Have you ever had that experience? (laughs) I blew it, how can I get it back? And so it's not only uh, a sense of discouragement, because basically now it's unpleasant, and before it was pleasant, let's face it, but, but also uh, really feeding into self-judgment the whole personality of, I can't do it. I did it wrong. Somehow I'm controlling this whole scenario, you know, and I blew it. But it's really just seeing, we call this anicca, right? I think we've mentioned that once in a while. Things change. Conditions change. But it's not just us. This is a a sutta from the time of the Buddha. I often use this one. He's talking to a monk, Bhikkhu, named Asaji. And it says, On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove. And he heard that Venerable Asaji, a long-term dedicated Bhikkhu, was very sick. He was afflicted. He was gravely ill. And the Buddha went to see him and Asaji was not only ill, but he was upset. And he was basically saying that he was, um, he was troubled by remorse and regret. So the Buddha questions him and he's saying, well, uh, do you have some, something in terms of your virtue, your sila to reproach yourself with, something you've done wrong that's bringing up this remorse and regret? And Venerable Asaji said, no, 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 Venerable Sir. He said, so what? basically is your problem. And um, he probably didn't say it like that, but who knows. So Asaji says, well, formerly, venerable sir, when I was ill, I was able to keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations, but now I cannot obtain concentration. And so it occurs to me, let me not fall away, In other words, he's lost his concentration, he can't tranquilize it, and he's thinking, oh no, I've lost it, don't let me fall away, I'm sick. And the Buddha basically says, Asaji, haven't I told you? Whatever phenomena are subject to arising are subject to ceasing when the conditions change. He's basically saying, you're sick, you're sick as a dog. You can't cultivate concentration because the conditions of mind and body aren't present. And that's freedom, recognizing that. The freedom isn't getting the concentration. The freedom's recognizing that's what's happening. That's the essence of the path. So the, the lack of freedom is that really making a whole personality view around the belief it should be different. In fact, I think often when, you're, when, when we're in conflict with experience and you don't quite know why, check what's the view in the background, in the back of your mind. I find for me, it can almost always be boiled down to either it should be better or it should be different. And that's of course an endless one, right? It should be better, and no matter what's happening, it could be better. (laughs) And so to really see that's what's going on can be a moment of freedom. So that's one, not recognizing and taking it personally, not recognizing causes and conditions. Another one again is when we're seeing, and this is like a whole phase in practice, it's really important though, when on, on the personality level, we're really starting or continuing to see with wisdom some of our particular habits of mind, of heart, that bring us suffering or unhappiness, that bring others. They don't have to be huge ones, just little habits, like habit of impatience, for example. You know? And we start to see it and really understand it. And, f- and as you're aware of it, you feel the pain of it more. You think, well, I really see how that's not helpful. And then we go out and turn around, wait in the food line, and there's impatience springing up, and we're acting on it. But we're acting on it with awareness, which the Buddha says is is more useful, but it happens to be a lot more painful. (laughs) Because you know, as you're going and cutting in the head of the line and taking all this extra food, and you're so embarrassed everyone's looking at you, and you're so aware, oh... This craving is still running me, even though I know it's painful." Have you ever experienced that? <laughs> no, I see, you know, just, just to see. Uh, and, and, and even more, less when we go out in our life and see the habit's still running and we're really aware. And we can get so discouraged, we say, well, what's the point? I'm more neurotic now than when I started the practice. I'm doing these neurotic things more. Not really, we're just much more aware of it, you know. I'm doing it more. And so, you know, if you don't really bring in mindfulness wisdom here, you can really talk yourself out of practice because it's discouraging. And it's, that's what it's requiring of us, all of this, is that there's that willingness, that courage to keep dropping into this unpleasant painful experience with awareness and what we're saying i've seen i don't want to see this anymore and maybe the practice isn't helping say no bring it in bring the awareness in meet it but that's what's really hard really hard another and this is again obvious on one level but on another level it can be quite profound so sometimes just there's too much pain physical pain emotional pain and for sure for all of us there's moments when an emotional thing coming up is just overwhelming the physical pain's too strong you need to shift your attention i mean that's just part of practice but i mean in kind of a a larger way where it's more like the fear of oh no if awakening means i have to you know incorporate the awareness of this in my experience no thank you i'd rather not or just some unpleasant not even a killer pain not pain that's going to damage you we're not talking about that but sometimes I say take an itch I'm not going to die of the itch but sometimes it's so hard so hard just to be with it so I'm using a simple example but something stronger than that where you think I cannot bear this another moment. I cannot bear to see this pattern again in my life. And if we're not aware of that, the habit of avoiding the unpleasant reasserts itself and we abandon mindfulness, we abandon awareness, you know. But again, moment to moment. Another line I love from Samedo, Ajahn Samedo, when he was describing in his early years practicing in Thailand in the hot season in his Kuti, Believe me, I've done it. It's hot. In a kuti with a tin roof. And it's like, you know, 105 degrees and the sun's beating down and you're in the roof with long sleeve things on. It's like you're cooking. So he's sitting in that kuti. There's no AC. You can't go get like an iced Coke or something. You know, you're just sitting there and there's no food. It's afternoon. That's it for the day. So he's just sitting here, sweating through my robes, thinking, what am I doing here? I can't bear this another second. And then I'd find that I could. That's, I love that. I'll be sitting, I can't be with this for one more second. It's like this now. That's all. The one moment. The one moment, the releasing of the clinging to the idea, I can't bear it, and just that Relaxing, surrendering into the moment. Not with a sense, no, if I do it this moment, I have to do it the next moment, I have to. Do. Just this moment. That complete surrendering with awareness. Coming out of the cage of Sakaya Ditti. We don't know where it's going to go. It really requires us to, to keep connecting with to keep finding our aspiration our motivation our trust and confidence which is why i started with the, the talk with really acknowledging for yourself to recognize the moments of wisdom the moments of freedom that's what we not to try and hold on to them but to trust them to have confidence that those are true and will happen again and that gives us the confidence to say okay there's nothing but this moment. Truth is only available in this moment. As Dogen said, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? So something, again, gives us the courage to just surrender for one moment, not for any, anything, just to be here. Now, a different way that we can kind of um, hit a wall is one that Sada Upandita called stopping within. And there's a couple ways. I'm now I'm extrapolating. I don't know if this is how he meant it exactly. One is when uh, our practice or our life—it doesn't have to be in retreat, but also in life—is going along well. There's maybe been a lot of insight, or particular levels of suffering that brought us into practice or brought us on the path have really been ameliorated. You are not suffering as much. And there really is, you know, a difference. And it's like, wow, this is great. And then it's kind of like, and it's good enough. Mm-hmm. It's good enough, you know. We might find, and, and um, sometimes people say, I've, I've seen it in myself too. It's just part, as we go along our path, we say, oh, discover this is good enough. And I thought, oh, I, maybe I wasn't really in this for a full awakening. I was in this to, to, to make life a little bit better. Which, of course, I mean, why does any of us start? There's nothing wrong with that. But the stopping within is when we say, okay, well, maybe we're not quite conscious of it. Okay, that's good enough. And then if you're on retreat, for example, you might find something else comes up that's a little difficult, but you have a way, I don't need to go with that. This is good enough. Let me go and open to the stars. It's beautiful. <laughs> now, there's times that's totally appropriate, Right? Like when James was talking about really accessing the uplifting qualities, the joy. There's times that's totally appropriate. I'm not saying no. But that's to bring us back into balanced awareness to keep on being fully present for whatever presents itself. What I was just saying now could sound like it's the same, but it's really like, I've had enough, okay. The stars are so beautiful. Where did Greg say that Andromeda was? Maybe I could go write him a note. Oh, if I could get my phone from the managers, I could look on that app someone was telling me about. And and Rachel was saying, you pointed at the sky and it goes, and then we're gone, right? So, but just look and see, and this is not to be judging. We really want to see deep in our own hearts and minds. We keep finding what our motivation is. And for me I found that it keeps deepening and changing over the years. We come to more understanding. We say, oh yeah, this is pretty good. But but real freedom might be possible. But that means to keep on going, to keep on looking. And it means we'll come again at some point we'll keep coming back into facing some aspect of our views or ideas about ourselves or ideas of what freedom is that are going to get challenged. There's no way around that. Or sometimes, you know, we think we're starting to get the intimation of that. Wow, some aspects of my personality, I'm really, or even I'm going to have to let go of that. And then we get these ideas that aren't necessarily true, but like, well, if, if I really, if, if non-clinging is really uncompromising, that means I'm going to have to let go of the beauty of nature, right? That means whatever our mind comes up with, all kinds of stuff. That means I'm going to have to let go of loving my family, that means I'm going to have to let go of caring about the environment or of doing social justice work in the world or whatever. We, we come up with, well, if liberation means that, I don't want it, right? Or sometimes, and this is, this is weird, but I've experienced it. Maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. But, or it's a sense of certain aspects of my personality, even kind of suffering ones, but they're so familiar. They're so comfortable. It's like putting on an old comfortable bathrobe that you don't want to take away. Who would I be without this impatience? You know? Who would I be without whatever it is? And just, it doesn't make sense. But I've often felt it's like like a little, a sense of a small death. Of some idea about my personality, I want to want to go back to the pleasure garden that the Buddha had before he was the Buddha, when it was all nice. But we were nice because we we're in complete delusion of what was going on. You know, I want to go back. I don't want to see that there's dukkha in these aspects. Let me just get all comfy in my delusion. You know, it's too late for that, right? Yeah. It's just too late for that. But we want it, you know. Uh, Chogyam Trungpa call that nostalgia for samsara. You know, I want to go back, I want to go back. We've done all this work, but let's pretend it never happened. <laughs> this is from Ajahn Samedo. Again, it's in his preface to that book, The Island, that uh, Adrian mentioned. As one begins to realize or recognize, that non, recognize non-grasping as the way then emotionally one can feel quite frightened by it. It can seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, starts falling apart and it can be frightening. But if we have the faith to continue bearing with these emotional reactions and allow things that arise to cease, to appear and disappear according to their nature, then we find that our stability is not in achievement or attaining, but in being, in being awake, in being aware. That really is where the stability where the freedom is and taking refuge in the awareness that's receiving whatever particular phenomenon is arising, is existing, is passing away. Awareness receiving, awareness receiving. We take our refuge in that moment to moment. And that awareness receiving is also really feeling whatever is occurring. It's not holding experience at a distance. And to me this is really really where the courage comes, to find for ourselves that courage, that patience to take a breath and just surrender into this moment. Stephen Batchelor is another way of saying the same thing. Stephen Batchelor says, emptiness is not just an experience of oceanic bliss, it's a falling apart of all of our strategies of self-interest, of self-centeredness, of seeming protection. And although it's freeing, at times it can bring about a great sense of disconcertion, of dis-ease. It's like being in a, say, no man's land, a no person's land. Like you don't know where you are, you don't have the familiar reference points. Shanti Deva talks about three aspects of transcendent patience that we bring to our practice. Patience when wronged, that's the first way we normally think. Patience to bear hardships for the Dhamma. And that's a lot of what I was talking about, all the different difficult patience to bear the hardships for the Dhamma for awakening. And the third, the patience to face the profound truth without fear. Not that fear doesn't come, but we don't let it run us. So when when Stephen's saying, you know, or when Ajahn Semedo's saying, you see it's a falling apart of all of our strategies, all of our ideas about things. The patience to face that, the patience to meet that with awareness, whatever arises, that's really the taking refuge in awareness, the sense of courage determination really finding how do we find that courage how do we keep connecting with it and we all have our own ways and i'm just mostly talking about this tonight just to remind us that this is the path for all of us everything that's occurring these most scary difficult experiences boring these hard ones these repetitive that you think you've seen it seven million times and it's happening again these are the path they're not what we get through to get on the path. This is it. And how in a moment the awareness that chitta, meets the arising experience, that that's the, the place of freedom and purification. The freedom isn't getting rid of the experience. It's in that moment when, like Sameda's saying, I can't be with it, and it's aversion, it's me, it's all the stories, and, oh, it's like this now. Just that simple moment of heart-mind free of kalesa, free of clinging. Seems like nothing. You're sitting here sweating through your robes, the same as you were a second earlier. But in this moment, the heart-mind is free. It's the same sweaty robes. This is really, everything is our path. Trusting that, connecting to, remembering the moments of freedom of wisdom, of understanding. This really, I find, helps so much to reconnect with whatever your deep aspiration is. Aspiration, not expectation, right? But we need to remember what it is because it takes a lot of courage to keep going in this way. So to discover the, the wisdom, the courage, the humility, really to keep just surrendering again no matter what. We think we had the biggest insight and the next hour we just feel like we never meditated before and you have to go in and tell the teacher that you're completely hopeless, (laughs) right? Can we find the humility? You see, this is just another arising experience. How is the awareness meeting it? That's the place of freedom or the place of suffering. Another thing that helps us one is connecting with the aspiration. Another thing that really helps me sometimes when it's a real dukkha, a real suffering thing, that I can see I'm caught in the personalness of it, a lot of Sakaya Ditti around it. It's a little bit of a reflection, but often it moves into a real um, a real perception experience, is to I'm 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 all in my own story, whatever it is, and I just start to recognize that. This is a particular expression of this aspect of dukkha that is shared by all humans, whatever it is. And you could try really hard, but I bet no one can really come up with something that when you, when you get to the nub of what it's about, that you're the only human being that ever experienced this particular thing. You say, well, the particular story, okay, but that's not it. Whatever it is, I start to, oh, this experience of unbearable loss, this experience of fear, losing the sense of who I am, this experience of just hating having this cough, you know, whatever, to start to expand it and see it as, as it's a representative expression of the human condition. And when I do that, it's like, it starts as a, as a contemplation sometimes, but it just almost almost always, not always, but almost always, really moves into empathy and compassion, that sense of compassion that we're, we're all. This is just a unique expression of all of the human condition. May I meet it for the benefit of all beings. It really helps to die again into this particular moment. And uh, another mental quality we don't talk about too much, but that really helps. It's one of the paramis, one of the ten perfections, the ten wholesome qualities that are developed. And that's uh, in Pali, it's aditana. It's translated as resolution or determination. So when it's wholesome, it's a very wholesome quality, and it's it's um it's the quality of it's just like a a pulling together of the energy. The term resolution of like just do it like that. Not I'm gonna do it by going. Just do it like the Nike thing. Just do it. <laughs> Again, like I I use a simple example. Like in the morning, you know, you, your, your alarm goes off. You're lying there. Ah, oh, I don't want to get up. And uh, and you can wander around in the thoughts for a while. You can think about your dream. You can get into the aversion. You can. Then it's always, just get up. Just do it <laughs> without any big. way, well, you just get up. That was so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. And so, just starting to recognize that quality of determination is kind of like a, a bringing together of the energy in a moment the energy and the aspiration. The moment, okay, just do it. I don't want to go to the sit. The bell rings, you just go. Have you noticed how that starts to happen? The bell rings, and of the sitting. Should I walk? Should I have tea? You just go and you walk. It's so much easier than all that hoofala, you know, you just walk, and then you sit, and then you walk, and then you sit. It's so easy. And determination is just, oh, yeah, just do it. And so we can do it on small levels. We can do it sometimes, it's with wisdom. It's what, sometimes when you know there's obsessive thoughts going on, but you really could just see, you know, not now. Not with the hammer, not with the aversion, but the times you just, saw what Joseph calls the sword of wisdom, not now. That's determination, energy coming together. And so in small, moment to moment, that's one way Aditana resolution works. In a larger picture, like overall, when we have a sense of what our aspiration is. So if, for example, I, I feel that my aspiration is the path of practice, which is really all of life, it's not just about being on retreat, is really to free the heart and mind from clinging, if that's my aspiration. Of course, you're not thinking that every moment, but then when something gets really difficult, or, I, or not difficult, too pleasant, uh, I'll do that later. Right now, I'm going back to the pleasure garden for a little while. Not with a should or anything, but the sense of tuning into the larger aspiration can really give us strength to our present moment motivation. So I said, well, should I go do that? No, it's okay. I think I'll just go sit right now. Or in daily life, when you're getting all confused, I've got so much to do in the morning and make my toast and make my coffee and do these. I don't have time to sit. And you're going like this. You, go, you know what? Just sit. Just sit. Just a moment of determination, resolution, in service of your larger aspiration. It kind of is a guideline, the larger aspiration, to bring our moment-to-moment motivation into alignment, with what's really important to us. So that determination can really help. Again from Ajahn Semedo, he was talking about, I, I, this is I think in a retreat I heard him say this, he was talking about at one point, and when he was the abbot of Amaravati, during one of what I'm sure were many very difficult phases, interpersonally, in the monastery, and, and So a lot of difficult stuff was going on over a long period of time. And he said, being that he felt that he was very blamed. He was feeling very blamed. And he said, and my personality hated it and feared it. And he was getting caught up in hating and fearing and the blame. And then he said, and then I really got in touch with my... And I determined, I determined to put my trust in awareness. Not to put my trust in my personality and moods. I mean, this was his whole practice, trusting in awareness. But we have to remind ourselves. We're all caught up and we're right. We make the determination to trust awareness, to really take refuge in awareness, not in the moods, not in the personality. Not denying the personality, but not relying on it for freedom, for ease. Because we never know, we never know What's going to come up? And so when I talk about surrendering into the moment, surrendering into what's happening, I don't mean by that abdicating choice or decisions or actions. In some ways, I think it means really sometimes taking much more courageous choices much more courageous action really because there's no other choice if we really want to wake up there's an e- oh, I can't find it an example that I often use of a movie I saw well I can remember it maybe some of you have seen it it's been around for quite some time it's a it's a documentary about two friends who were mountain climbing in the Andes called Touching the Void You've seen that it's really pretty intense. So anyway, the short story: they're two, two, they're mountain climbing very, very high mountains in the Andes. They're roped together, just the two of them, and one of them slides and falls over the edge of a deep crevasse. So they're roped together. So they're like this for hours. The other guy, who's still up on the mountain, can't pull the other one up. There's no purchase. He can't do it. He's trying for hours. He can't pull him up. And if he goes any closer, he's just going to get pulled over. So he has to make his decision, so he cuts the rope. So he cuts the rope. The other guy falls into the crevasse. And the other guy goes, he can't see, he can't can't go down there. So he makes his way back to their camp down at the base. And he waits at the camp for a few days to see if his friend could come. But he figures he's probably dead. So the other guy fell over the crevasse and he dropped into... So kind of like a real abyss, you know, a real narrow crevasse. But he, he kind of hit a ledge and didn't go too far down. So he's on this leg. He broke his leg because it was so hard. And he's, but he's caught on this ledge. And the crevasse is completely, you know, dark and black and just goes down and down and down. So he's there and he's just there. And he said, the deepest fear he had was of the abyss. To go into that abyss was like the absolute deepest fear he had. So he's just hanging on that ledge with his broken leg overnight. And then he realizes, well, nothing's going to happen. Nobody's going to come. I mean, the, the other guy couldn't get there and there were no other people. So finally, he said, you know, I had to do something. I could not just abdicate. I had to do something. And all he could do was try to lower himself back down into that abyss that was his deepest fear. So he did it. He did it and turned out that it wasn't so deep and he actually hit land and it kind of went a little bit up and he saw light at the end and he could scramble his way up. Now, mind you, he has a broken leg. So he scrambled his way up and then the rest of the movie is, because this is a recreation like 20 years later, but it really happened. The rest of the movie is how he's scrambling over amazing terrain with that broken leg. And I, I think it took a couple of days you know, over rocks and all, and he's getting back. And and by the time he's almost back without food, without water and all that pain, however long it had been, his friend was just in the act of packing up the camp thinking he couldn't have survived this long. And the guy crawling out was so out of it that he was totally delirious. And the only thing that kind of brought him back up as he was getting close to camp was the smell of the kind of the acid from from all the urine from where they had had their little, you know, what do you call it, latrine. And that smell was so acrid from someone who hadn't eaten or drunk anything for days that it shot him back into consciousness and he made his way back. So that's intense, right? But that moment of the deepest fear that the way out, the only way out was in. It won't always be that intense for us, but... (laughs) It feels like it sometimes, though, doesn't it? It feels like it. (laughs) Okay. So, never abdicate. But it's just this moment of awareness. What's happening now? The Buddha said, Two things I never lost sight of. Not to shrink from the struggle, and not to rest contented merely with wholesome states of mind. The Dalai Lama. One day you will become bodhisattvas in reality. So whatever obstacles there are, however long it takes, do not be discouraged. There's only this moment we can meet with mindfulness. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit a moment. So just notice those moments of purity when you're looking at the stars or whatever. And please come back for the chanting, if you will. Like to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.